You're listening to What Does the Word Say, a series of podcasts on biblical theology produced by Grace and Glory Media. My name is Mark Roby, and I'm your host for this series. Our teacher is Dr. Richard Spencer. We're resuming our study of systematic theology today by continuing to examine Christology. Last time we looked at a number of reasons why Jesus had to be a real man in order to accomplish his work. Dr. Spencer, what would you like to examine today? I want to start to look at what theologians call the offices of Christ. That may sound funny to someone who's never heard of it, but it's a good way to understand the comprehensive nature of the Lordship of Christ and to develop a better appreciation for all that he has done and continues to do for his people. And by the offices of Christ, you're referring to the fact that he functions as a prophet, priest, and king. Exactly. But before we get into the offices themselves, I want to point out that Jesus Christ is the unique God-man forever. In other words, once the second person of the Holy Trinity became incarnate so that there are two natures in one person, that will never change. Jesus Christ did not and will not give up his humanity and go back to being only God. The man Jesus Christ was clearly raised from the dead with a real physical body, albeit a body that has been glorified and has new properties fit for eternity, as Paul labors to explain in chapter 15 of his first letter to the Corinthians. And we're told in Acts chapter 7, verse 56, that when Stephen was being stoned to death, he said, Look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, which clearly tells us that Jesus was still the God-man after his resurrection. That's right. And the Apostle John saw the same thing in the vision given to him on the island of Patmos. He tells us in Revelation 1, verses 12 and 13, that, quote, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest, unquote. It's an astounding fact that when the Eternal Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, humbled himself and became a man, it was not a temporary accommodation. Out of love and compassion for his people, and to the praise of his own glory, he became man forevermore, so that he could function as the only mediator between God and man, as we read in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. That is an unfathomable display of love. And it is all the more amazing when you consider that we are all rebellious sinners. Very true. And so now, turning to the offices of Christ, what do you want to cover first? I want to give a little background from the Old Testament. We see prophets, priests, and kings in the Old Testament, although these three offices are never all invested in a single person. Although some of the kings did prophesy, for example. King David certainly prophesied at times. That's very true but he was not a prophet in the sense that he was God's appointed spokesman to speak his word to the people. In fact, God often spoke to David through his appointed prophet, Nathan. In any event, all three offices are necessary. We have some knowledge of God and his nature available to us just from observing creation. The universe itself, including our own consciences, provides sufficient witness to the fact that God exists, that he is immensely powerful, and that he expects us to live holy lives. 
but we need further revelation from God to know in detail how we are to live to please Him. That is the function of a prophet. And the first major prophet we encounter in the Old Testament is Moses, whom God used to lead His people out of slavery in Egypt. And Moses is also the author of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which are collectively called the Pentateuch, which simply means five books, just like the Pentagon is a five-sided building. There were, of course, many more prophets after Moses and prior to the time of Christ. And most people are familiar with some of their names. Uh, You have Elijah and Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, to name just a few of the better-known prophets. But contrary to the claims of the Mormon Church and Islam, there have been no prophets since the time of Christ. He is the last prophet. And Moses actually told us about his coming. He told the people, as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. And the Apostle Peter specifically applied that verse to Jesus Christ in the sermon he gave in Solomon's colonnade on the south end of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. This is recorded for us in Acts chapter 3, and in verse 22 he specifically cites that verse as referring to Jesus. In addition, in Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2, we're told that, quote, "...in the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways." But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. It would be foolish indeed to not listen to the one who created this universe. Yes, it would be. And in addition to needing prophets to tell us the word of God, we also need a priest, which is a person who intercedes with God on our behalf. In other words, he's a mediator. Exactly. A priest in the Old Testament was responsible for offering the sacrifices that God required, and he did this on behalf of himself and also the people as a whole. He was also responsible for praying for the people. In 1 Samuel 12, verse 23, we read that Samuel, who functioned as both a priest and a prophet, told the people, As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you and I will teach you the way that is good and right. And now the fact that it would have been sin for him to not pray makes it obvious that one of his duties was to pray for the people. We also see in that verse that the priest or prophet had a teaching function. Yeah, the word of God is always teaching us. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, unquote. And this would certainly also be true of anything the prophets had said in the name of God that was not recorded in the Bible for our use. And that leads us to the third category, that of a king. I think most everyone has heard of King David and King Solomon, but there were other Old Testament examples as well. And even today, if there isn't a king, there is still some other kind of civil authority. Without authority, all you have is chaos. So in addition to the prophet and priest, we need a king. The primary function of a king, of course, is to rule. And if a king or any government functions properly, he or they should rule for the good of the people. Of course, God is the ultimate king. He rules over all of his creation, and he doesn't need earthly kings to do his job any more than he needs a prophet or a priest. These are all concessions to us. 
and we are to learn how to humbly submit and to obey his delegated authorities. Okay, we've briefly discussed the three offices of prophet, priest, and king, and illustrated that they existed in the Old Testament. You also mentioned that no one person ever held all three offices prior to the time of Christ, and that Christ is the last true prophet. He is also the last true priest since his sacrifice was efficacious and need not ever be repeated, and he always lives to intercede on behalf of his people. And he's also the king of kings. He rules over all human rulers. But I'd like to begin by discussing his role as a prophet. Very well, please go on. As we noted, the primary function of a prophet is to relay to us the word of God. And when you look at the first chapter of John's gospel, what do you find? That Jesus is called the word. The first verse says that in the beginning was the word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's an amazing verse in a number of ways. First, when it says, in the beginning, it clearly harkens back to Genesis 1-1, which says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Secondly, it is, as we discussed in sessions 51 and 52, a clear statement of the deity of Jesus Christ. But I want to note today the choice of word John used. The Greek word translated as word in this verse is logos, which can mean word, reason, rational account, and so on. It is, for example, the root of our English word logic. And this word was a uniquely appropriate choice for John to use. Now, why is that? James Boyce called this choice, quote, a stroke of divine genius, because the word was as meaningful to Greeks as it was to the Jewish people of the time. Let's first look at what the word logos would have meant to a Jewish person at the time of Christ. Boyce first notes, as we already said, that when John wrote, quote, in the beginning was the word, it certainly would have caused any Jew to think of the first verse of Genesis. And since the Genesis account of creation repeatedly tells us that God said, let there be light or whatever, and then tells us that it was so, speaking about the Word would immediately have conjured up the idea of God's creative power. And so Boyce wrote that, quote, In other words, Jesus would immediately be associated with the creative power of God and with the self-disclosure of God in creation. And I'm sure that would be quite a shock to a monotheistic Jew of the first century, whose conception of God was so transcendent. I'm sure it was a shock. And Boyce goes on to point out that in addition to this connection to the creation account, quote, to a Jewish mind, the idea of a word would mean more than it does to us today. The reason is that to the Jewish way of thinking, a word was something concrete, something much closer to what we would call an event or a deed. And that concept of a word is in perfect harmony with the creation account of Genesis. God spoke and it came to be. And God tells us through the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. That's a great verse for showing the power of God's word. And so the Jewish people would have seen a great significance in the way John worded that opening line of his gospel. But what about the Greek people who heard it? Boyce says that the word would have had great significance for them as well. 
What would they have thought? Well, at the time of Jesus, the word logos already had a long history of use in Greek philosophy. Boyce goes through this in his book, but I think a more succinct statement is found in John Frame's book, A History of Western Philosophy and Theology. He wrote that, quote, In Greek philosophy, the logos is the principle of rationality that directs the course of the universe and makes it accessible to human reason, unquote. As a result, Boyce paraphrases the meaning of the first verse of John's Gospel to a Greek reader at the time of Christ in the following way. He says it was like saying, quote, Listen, you Greeks, the very thing that has most occupied your philosophical thought and about which you have all been writing for centuries, the Logos of God, this word, this controlling power of the universe in man's mind, this has now come to earth as a man, and we have beheld him full of grace and truth. I see now why Boyce called the use of that word logos a stroke of divine genius. You can see that it would have had a significant impact on all of his audience, independent of whether they were Jews or Gentiles. And so we have shown that Jesus certainly functioned as a prophet, and that he did that in a unique way. He didn't just tell us the Word of God, he is the Word of God. And he often spoke with that kind of authority. We made the point when we discussed the deity of Christ in session 54 that the Old Testament prophets often prefaced their sayings with something like, this is what the Lord says. But Jesus spoke the Word of God in the first person, not just as a spokesman. As I noted back then, five times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you have heard, and then quotes an Old Testament passage, or in one place, the Jews' misunderstanding of an Old Testament passage, and then he follows that by saying, but I tell you, and goes on to expand on what is said in the Old Testament. In other words, he adds to God's words as recorded in Scripture, which is something that only God can do. Jesus is the prophet with a capital P. He is God incarnate. Is there anything else you'd like to say about Jesus fulfilling the office of a prophet? Yes, I'd like to look at the Westminster Shorter Catechism again. Question 24 asks, how does Christ execute the office of a prophet? And the answer is that Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us, by his word and spirit, the will of God for our salvation. And like the rest of the Catechism, that's a gloriously compact and accurate statement. But it adds two important things to our discussion. First, it says that Christ revealed God's will to us by his word and spirit. In John 15, verse 26, Jesus told his disciples that, quote, When the Counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, unquote. And in the next chapter, we read that Jesus was telling his disciples that he must go away, which was referring to his ascension. And he then says in John 16, verses 6 and 7, Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And this promised counselor is the Holy Spirit, who comes to dwell with everyone who commits his life to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And the Holy Spirit continues the work of Jesus in revealing to us God's will. And now we see the second wonderful detail that the Catechism adds to our discussion. It says that Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit 
the will of God for our salvation. God's ultimate purpose is the manifestation of his own glory, but that is achieved in part by saving a people to be his very own, as we read in Titus 2, verse 14. And so in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, we read that Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And when John says we may have life, he means that we may have eternal life in heaven with God. That is the purpose of Jesus Christ coming as the final and ultimate prophet, to save his people from their sins and to purchase a people to be God's eternal possession. That is astounding. And I also think it's a great place to end for today. So let me remind our listeners that they can email their questions and comments to info at whatdoesthewordsay.org, and we will answer to the best of our ability. You've been listening to What Does the Word Say? Brought to you by Grace and Glory Media. And I'm Mark Roby. In our next session, Dr. Spencer will continue to examine biblical Christology, and we hope you'll join us. The session you heard today is available, along with all other sessions, in the archive on our website at whatdoesthewordsay.org. We also have a free book available to you entitled Good News for All People, written by Rev. P.G. Matthew, founder and senior minister of Grace Valley Christian Center. To request your free copy of this excellent summary of the biblical message of salvation, go to whatdoesthewordsay.org.